take our Bibles this morning. We're going to turn to the book of Philippians, chapter number 1. Philippians chapter 1. I will confess to you that I love the book of Philippians, and because of that, I'm probably taking a little more time in preaching it maybe than I would some other places in Scripture, because it just seems so rich, uh, the... Uh, the, this particular chapter, I really imagined that maybe we'd finish it last week, and we didn't, and then I thought, well, we'll finish it this week, and we won't, so anyway, you're just going to have to bear with me on that, but there's just so much here uh, that I trust will be helpful to you. Uh, remember that this book is really a book about joy and rejoicing in the Lord and serving the Lord. And it's written from a man, or by the hand of a man, uh, who is in prison. He's in bonds, awaiting trial and, and uh, really facing the possibility of death. And yet he's writing to a free people, encouraging them to rejoice in the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Just a matter of perspective. Let's, uh, let's stand together if you are in Philippians 1. We're going to read just one verse of scripture, verse 27, Philippians 1, verse 27, it says here, only, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> I pray that in these next few moments that you would open our understanding, help us to see what's here in our text, uh, Lord, to consider it, to be able to understand exactly what it is you're trying to say to us, and to be able to make application in our lives. I pray that you'd help me as the preacher to be able to communicate your word effectively. Uh, Lord, would your spirit please guide my mind, my mouth, to say the things that need to be said and to not say things that ought not be said. And uh, Lord, give us all hearts that are open and receptive to truth and give us ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you for standing. In the previous verses, the ones that we've looked at in the last couple of uh, Sunday mornings that we've been in Philippians, uh, we, we've seen Paul here talking about the fact that he is in prison and really uh, essentially that it could go either way. He could be set free, he could be released, or he could be put to death. And while he was facing the possibility of death, most of us would say uh, that must have been a tragic thing or a very difficult thing for him. Or, or maybe we would even say God would give him the grace to get through that. But Paul was actually had a different approach, and he said, I'm in a straight betwixt two. In other words, I'm not, just, I'm not sure what I want, whether I, whether I want to stay here and, and minister to you and continue serving in the capacity that God has given me, or if I desire to just go home and be with the Lord, which is far better. And that's what he even said. I, I have a desire to depart and to be with the Lord. That's what I want. And really, that should be the desire of every Christian, to, to be in the presence of the Lord. But he said, nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you, in verse number 24. 
And so he's basically saying, I believe that the Lord is going to let me live, at least for a time, in order that I might benefit other believers, that I might be a help, that I might be an encouragement, that I might strengthen and encourage you. And so while I want to go and be with the Lord, I believe that it may be God's will for me to stay and serve. That, that really is his attitude. And then he starts verse 27 with this word, only. And this, this is kind of an interesting thing. I don't want to get too far down in the weeds here. But, but the word only, we often think of it meaning exclusively. Uh, when we say only, this is the only one. This is the exclusive one. But there are actually times in Scripture where the word only is expressed in kind of a conversational way to, to basically say, here are some expectations that I'm putting uh, upon this situation. So one example of that would be, uh, for instance, in I believe it's in 1 Corinthians 7 where it talks about when, uh, when, when someone is widowed, when a believer in Christ is widowed, uh, that they are, they're free to marry someone else, but then it uses the phrase only in the, only in the Lord. In other words, you have freedom to marry someone else, but with the condition that that person is a believer in Christ. They're, they're saved. And so this only kind of has this, this expectation or this requirement attached to it. And if you, you consider that in, in, this, in light of this passage, Paul's saying, okay, I want to go and be with the Lord, but I believe that he wants me to stay and continue serving and helping you only. In other words, this is what I'm requesting of you. If I'm going to make the sacrifice and stay here on earth and not go to be with the Lord, here is what I am requiring or expecting of you. And so he says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. In other words, as I, as I look at you, I want to see that my effort has been worthwhile. Have you ever thought of that before? Have you ever done something for someone else and, 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 and basically said, I'm not looking for anything in return, but if I'm going to make this sacrifice, I hope that they will take it and use it for good. Maybe you've helped someone financially before and you've said to them, hey, I don't mind doing this at all, but I would only ask that when you have opportunity to help someone else that you would do the same. Or maybe you would give someone a book and say, this book has been a blessing to me. I'm going to pass it on to you free of charge. I only ask that if I do this, that you will find someone that it could be a help to and pass it on as well. This is kind of the idea he's saying. I'm going to stay, Lord willing, and be, a, be an encouragement and help to you. But I am asking you to live in this way. If this is what, the way it's going to be, I am requesting, I'm desiring of you that your conversation would be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. And notice he even says that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. And in other words, whether I, whether I have the opportunity to come and be there in person or someone comes and re gives me a report about how things are going in the city of Philippi, I want to hear that you are doing well in this regard. I I'm willing, I'm committed, I'm all in on serving the Lord together with you and for you, but I am asking of you that, you, that your conversation would be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Now you might look at that and say, well, what exactly does that mean? I want to just kind of 
unpack this verse together this morning, I want you to notice, first of all, that this is a reference to conduct. He says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel. Now, the word conversation, we know it's an old English word that has to do with our lifestyle, our manner, our way of being. And he says, let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel. Have you ever heard the phrase, that behavior is not very becoming of you? It, the, the word becoming literally means to uh, be befitting or to, uh, to, to, uh, to be worthy of something. It's the same concept as where Paul uh, told, uh, told the Ephesians that they are to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith they are called. In Colossians, he said that they, that they were to walk worthy of the Lord in all pleasing. It has this idea, I want you to live your life in a manner that is worthy and befitting of the gospel. I want your lives to be consumed with the gospel. And really this admonition has two aspects. There's two aspects to living in a way that is becoming of the gospel. The first is, I think that which is pretty obvious, we have been saved out of a life of bondage and sin and wickedness. We have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's dear Son, brought into His marvelous light, and now we have, there's an expectation on us that our lives are going to reflect the change that was made because of the gospel. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Don't go living like a lost person. Don't go off and live a life of carnality and wickedness and sin. That's not becoming of the gospel. A life that, listen, a, salvation is not just about fire insurance. We get saved so that we're forgiven so that we can go to heaven. That's not really what it's all about in its entirety. We are saved so that we can be restored to fellowship with God, so that we can serve God. We, we have been, been given this great gift of grace that our lives might bring honor and glory to God. And so don't, don't go back to a life of wickedness and ungodliness. Romans says it uh, with the question. In Romans chapter 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he answers that question by saying, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? If you've been saved, don't go on living as though you're not. What was the point of it all, right? Why, why would you go back to that to that life. And so that's the first aspect. Behavior that is becoming of the gospel is a life that is reflective, that bears witness to the glory and grace of God. But there's another aspect as well, and this aspect has to do with our desire now to proclaim His gospel to other people. Think about this. When you got saved, God did not immediately call you home to heaven, did He? You didn't just get saved and, okay, all of a sudden, now your, your name's in the book of life and you're home. He didn't do that. He left you here. And he left us here with a purpose and a calling. And that purpose is that we are to be bringing others to Christ. Ye are the light of the world. 
Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5, Jesus talked about that. And so he's given to us a purpose and we are to be engaging in that, trying to reach other people with the gospel. But sometimes, let's just be honest, sometimes our lives are not reflective of the calling that God has put on us. In other words, when was the last time that you tried to reach someone else for Christ? Personally. That you witnessed to them. That you prayed for them. That you tried to reach someone for Christ. Our entire lives, now that we have been born again, ought to be reflective of the gift of grace that we have received in Christ and one of those ways, if, if we have truly been born again, one of the things that should happen immediately is a desire to tell others about what God has done for us. Hold your place here and go back with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And I want to show you um, just an example. I guess an illustration or an example that the Lord put for us on the pages of Scripture. Notice it says in verse 27, And when Jesus departed thence, Matthew 9, 27, When Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this. They said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened. Listen to this. And Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. Now, here, this is, always fascinates me. There were times in Scripture where Jesus would heal someone and then tell them. This isn't the only instance. There are other times where Jesus would say, now don't go telling anyone about this. Now, in one place it says, because his time was not yet come. In other words, uh, it wasn't time for him really to be, you know, God, God has, has a plan and timing, and there were certain things that he didn't want getting out just yet, because obviously people, you know, it, it, the more that he became famous, the more... You know, it led to his death, and that was the, the end goal, but there were things he had to do, to do before that. But I can't help but wonder if sometimes the Lord didn't just give this commandment like, see if you can keep from telling people about this. Because here are two blind men that have just had their eyesight restored. Imagine, imagine what that would be like. To go from being totally blind, not being able to perceive anything around you, not light, not shapes, not colors, nothing, and all of a sudden having your eyes open. And by the way, when God does something, He doesn't do it part way. They were, their, their eyesight was restored. These guys didn't need glasses. They had clarity. Jesus opened their eyes. And then He says, don't tell anyone. <laughs> How's that going to work, right? Well, look, look at the very... Verse, uh, verse 31, but they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. Like, okay, Jesus said not to say it, but I can't not tell. How could I possibly keep my mouth shut 
Everyone who knows me knows that I'm blind, except I'm not anymore. How can I not tell everyone of this incredible thing that has happened to me? Even though I was told not to say anything, I can't help myself. Can I ask you, when was the last time that you just couldn't help yourself, but tell someone about Jesus and what he's done for you? Most of the time, I think we find ourselves having to work up the courage to work up even a desire to say, hey friend, let me tell you what Jesus did for me. But these guys couldn't, couldn't keep it in because of something so incredible that had happened to them. Friend, if you have been saved, your sins have been forgiven, washed away. You have been made a child of God, a joint heir with Christ. You have been guaranteed by God Himself a home in heaven when you die. You have been invited to come unto His throne, the throne of grace, anytime you have a need and obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You've been commanded to make your request known unto Him and promise that what you pray in faith according to the will of God will be done for His glory. I mean, folks, think about this. We have been given this promise that the Holy Spirit of God comes and takes up residence within us, our bodies are now the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in us. And he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. This is what we have in Christ. And it's eternal. It never goes away. And yet, how often do we find ourselves keeping quiet about what God has done for us? Behavior that is becoming of the gospel is not only living a lifestyle that is pleasing to the Lord, that is reflective of what He's done for us, but it's also a, a responsiveness that says, I want to go and tell other people of what He's done for me. And so He says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel. As we go back to Philippians 1... He, he says, I want you to live in a way that is befitting, that is worthy of the gospel which you have received and which you are to be proclaiming. So he speaks of our conduct. But then there is an admonition for communion. This is very important, friends. I hope you are listening. As he says here, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Verse 27 that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind. He said, I want you, as, as, a, as a group, notice he doesn't say thee. When the King James Bible uses the word thee and thou, that's singular, it's talking to individuals. When it uses you or ye, it's always in the plural. And so he's not talking to individuals. He's talking to them as a group, as a church. And he says to them, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel, that you, that ye, stand fast in one spirit with one mind. What's he saying? You need to be unified as a church. You need to be on the same page. You need to be working together. 
Can I tell you that I believe it's tragic when Christians, rather than working together, are working against each other? When rather than being in fellowship with one another, there's conflict and discord among the brethren? It's tragic and sad, and yet it's all too common. Personalities conflict, problems arise, words are said that are hurtful, and pretty soon you've got people that are brethren that are supposed to be co-laborers in the gospel. They can't stand each other. And I've seen, I've seen situations, I've been involved in situations in churches where there's such a divisive spirit. I mean, I describe it as soon as church dismisses, about 80% of the people just leave. And then the other 20% stand around talking, but they're all in different corners of the building talking quietly amongst themselves. And you know what they're talking about. I mean, I've seen that. I've seen churches in discord. But I've also seen situations where, okay, we don't have this obvious elephant in the room of division within the church. But one brother sits on this side of the church and one sits over here and they both are trying to serve the Lord, but they just don't want to do it together because they don't care for each other too much. Something happened years ago. They had a falling out and their way of getting along is just not interacting and not working together. Friend, that is not unity either. He says, behavior that is becoming of the gospel is a church that is unified. They're standing fast in one spirit. Their hearts are in it. Now, I want to say to you, friends, that I love you very much, and I'm thankful to serve the Lord with you, but I know that problems can, do, and will arise between us, conflicts, frustrations, it's bound to happen, we're flawed people, we're sinners, we've got to be willing to rise above that. By the grace of God, we've got to be willing to set aside some differences, to be at peace among ourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, verses 12 through 13, it says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And then he says, And be at peace among yourselves. In other words, As you try to help your pastors, as you try to encourage them and and esteem them highly in love, make sure that you're at peace with one another. You know that's actually the best way to encourage your pastor to be at peace with one another? (laughs) How many of you have children? How many of you like it when your children are getting along? It, It brings peace in the home. When God's people are getting along, it brings peace in the church. This is the thing, folks. And this is not accusative. I'm not saying that we've got a problem in this regard. I just know we are people and we always have opportunity for problems. And because God 
uses unified people, Satan is always working to create disunity. He's always working to stir things up. He's always working to try to cause people to maybe think negatively toward others or, or, or to assume things that maybe aren't even true. And Paul says, listen, I, I want you to be together on this. Because why? Amos 3 and verse 3, it says, can two walk together except they be agreed? We've got to be in agreement. We've got to be working together. And, th- and let me say this also, that every great moving of God in history has happened when there's unity among God's people. Acts chapter 2, as we read of that situation that happened on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, God took the time to make sure we knew that this happened when the day of Pentecost was fully come. They were all with one accord in one place. They were together, they were praying together, they were, they were in unity. Their, their mind and their heart, their, they, they, they were of one spirit, They were of one mind. That mind was, we want to glorify God. We want to reach other people with the gospel. And God worked among them. The opposite is also true. That if there is disunity among God's people, there will be a hindrance to the work of God. You're in Philippians 1. Go back a page or two to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, just a page or two back, and verse 29. Look what it says here. It says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And listen to verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And so he's saying that if we are to not grieve the Holy Spirit, we have to be willing to put aside Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking, and we have to respond to one another with tenderheartedness, love, kindness, and forgiveness. Folks, do we want the Holy Spirit to be pleased or to be grieved? I mean, that's an obvious, it's, it's an obvious answer. But how often do our actions maybe show that, you know, we we would say, well, we we want God's Spirit to have freedom to move and to work among us. But then we find ourselves at odds with one another, angry with each other, bitter. God said, that's a grief. That's a grief to the Holy Spirit. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 5 to quench not the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit can be grieved. He can also be quenched. Just like putting out a fire. God works where His people are together as one. And if there is bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, or evil speaking, it is to be put away from us. In other words, it needs to be repented of. 
and dealt with through, verse 32, kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. And so God's people need to be unified together. This is becoming of the gospel. A church that is successful is a church that is becoming of the gospel. And a church that is becoming of the gospel must be in unity. So we see this conduct. It's a lifestyle that God expects of us. We see that there must be communion and there must be a commitment. Let's go to... Philippians 1 again, and notice at the end of the verse, the last phrase of Philippians 1.27, he says this, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That statement alone has so much that we could, that we could talk about, but I'll say this. First of all, that this really encapsulates the purpose of the New Testament church. We are to strive together for the faith of the gospel. We have been given a commission that we are to take the gospel to every creature in the world. We are to preach the gospel. We are to teach all nations. We are to be witnesses unto Christ. This is, this is why we exist as a church. We are, we are to be a, a, an outpost, if you will, for... The gospel. I think this is something a lot of people have, have really missed the boat on and maybe failing to even understand what is the primary purpose of a church. And I'm going to say a couple things that might surprise some people, but a church is not primarily for the purpose of serving the community. A lot of people have the idea in their mind that churches exist basically for community assistance and help. Uh, we're here... To, to, to help people in need. We're here to, uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, to just uh, be kind of a pillar in the community. If, if problems come, it's a place for you to be able to turn. Uh, we're just here for you. And I want you to know I'm happy to try and serve our community. And I think we ought to do that. I, I think that we ought to be even more committed to that as a church. That's one area that we could grow is in trying to help and serve in the community. But understand this, that's not the primary purpose of the church. We're not here just to feed the hungry and to clothe the, the, those who don't have clothes and to make sure that people have housing. That, that's not our primary motivation, our primary purpose. While we can do those things and ought to do those things in order to show Christ's love, and we should try to use those opportunities to try to reach people, that is not our primary purpose. Let me say this also. Our primary purpose is not to be a social club or support system. A lot of people look for a church where they can find community. They're looking for a place where they can belong. They're looking for a place that can minister to and help their kids. They're looking for a place where they fit. However, that's not the primary purpose of a church either. Now, I will say this. One of the great byproducts of the design of a New Testament church is community. In fact, in a greater way than anything the world has to offer. But I want you to think about this. Some of you have served in the military, and I've always heard, I'm not a veteran myself, 
But I've always heard that there is a special connection, a brotherhood between military personnel, especially people who serve together in, in wartime situations. There's just a bond there that can't be undone. I, I, I understand that to some degree. Though I haven't experienced that in that particular setting, I understand it. Let me explain why. First of all, let me say this. We do not say, hey, join the army so that you can have a sense of community. Hey, join the Marines. You'll find a family. Now, that's not what we say. We encourage people, there's a purpose. You love your country. You love your freedom. Join up and serve. The, the Marines had a billboard some time ago. I don't know if they're still using it, but um, uh, we're, something like this. We're not looking for volunteers. We're looking for commitments. In other words, we're, we're looking for people to, 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 to give their all. And, and, and this is the idea. They join with a purpose. We're going to defend freedom. We're going to defend our country. We're going to band together. The purpose of our military is not to create a sense of brotherhood. The purpose of our military is to defend our freedoms and protect our nation, right? And what happens? As people serve, they find community. They find family. And here's the thing. The church does not exist primarily as a community, a club, or even a family. That's not our primary purpose. Our primary purpose is we are an outpost for the gospel. We are a team that has been given a purpose, and as we serve and fulfill that purpose, you know what happens? We find family. In, in the book of uh, Matthew, chapter 12, we won't take the time to go there, but there was a time Jesus was ministering, he was preaching and teaching, and his family, his mother and his brothers came looking for him. And one of his disciples said, hey, your, your mother and your brethren, they're without, they're with asking you. You know, you know what Jesus said? Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he said, he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my mother, my brother, my sister, my father. Here's the thing. You might be surprised if you haven't experienced this yourself, but as we serve the Lord together, we're drawn closer to each other. I'm, I'm thankful. Listen, I, some of the best friends that I have ever had in life our relationship was built on serving the Lord together. That's where we met each other. That, that's, that's, that's how we got to know each other, was serving the Lord together. And our friendship has grown as we've served God together. This is how this works. So while we can serve in a community and ought to do that, that's not our primary purpose. While, while there is tremendous blessing in being part of a church family and, 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 and serving the Lord together in that way. Our primary purpose is not to be a social club or support system. Our primary purpose is to proclaim the gospel. 
That is what we do as a church. That's what we are called to do. But I want you to notice that there is some effort required in that. Because he says that we are to strive together, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving, it, it literally means to fight. It doesn't mean that we're to, it doesn't say striving against one another, it says striving together. We're in a battle together. Battles don't happen haphazardly or while we're sitting back in a lazy chair. They require effort. They require training. They require commitment. Listen, I think so often we have this idea that what we do in church, you know, we, we just come together, we enjoy our time together, we just love one another, we just worship the Lord together, and we hope that someone in the church is trying to reach people, and we hope that if we can get other people to come and attend church, that they'll get saved because they're hearing the preaching. But that's not really striving for the gospel. That's not really laboring for the gospel. We have been given a commission, we've been given a command to go and tell. And this requires a concerted effort to strive, to go after the lost. This, this is what a church does. This is what Christians do. We are to tell others about Christ. Can I ask you, is your conversation becoming of the gospel? Are you, first of all, living a life that is befitting of the salvation that you have been given? Does your testimony to other people reflect the goodness of God? Do you blend into the rest of the world or do you stand out? Is your life testifying of Him? Are you in communion with the brethren? Is there something between you and a brother or sister in Christ? That's not just no big deal. Because it could be that something in your own life, something between you and someone else is actually a grief to the Holy Spirit and you're quenching the Spirit in your life and potentially even to some degree in the church and hindering the work that God wants to do. Behavior that's becoming of the gospel is standing together with one spirit, with one mind. And are you committed to proclaiming the gospel? Are you in this not just for the camaraderie, but for the commitment to say, God has saved me. And I'm going to live my life with the absolute purpose of reaching others for, the, for, for Christ. I want to preach the gospel. I want to tell others 
of how to be saved. I want to win souls for Christ because that's what I've been called to do. And so I'm going to link my arms with others and strive together with them to reach the lost. Is your behavior becoming of the gospel of Christ?